Well, Chris, thank you so much for taking the time to, to speak with me today and, and allowing us into the Reach Gallery to, to have a look around. Mm -hmm. um, let's start with yourself. How did you, how did you get involved with, with the museum sector and, and particularly with, with the Reach Gallery Museum? Well, uh, I started as a summer student in 1983, and I was working then with the MSA Museum Society, which is Trithui House Heritage Site here in Abbotsford. It's since become Heritage Abbotsford. Um, and the summer position interested me because it had to do with history and storytelling, which I love. Anyway, a uh, girlfriend and I got the summer jobs, and we just had a fabulous time. We did a lot of programming with kids, uh, community outreach, and I just enjoyed it so thoroughly. And the curator there, um, Diane Kelly, was involved in with the BC Museums Association. I think she was president at the time. And she picked up on my interest and my passion, and she mentored me. She kept me coming back, you know, as all of us do as incubators of, of young historians and young artists, kept me coming back on grants and contracts until finally I had a full-time job as a collections manager there. So it was a period of years, obviously, as it is for many young people coming into the field. So I took, uh, took a records management certificate. You know, I'm of an age where counselors weren't saying, oh, you should become a curator. They're saying you should go into office careers. Uh, and so that's the path I had started on. But then I just pursued certificate courses through UBIC and others and got to where I am today. And then, uh, in about 2006, um, after many years, many, many years of striving for a real museum, a purpose-built museum in this community and, and gallery, um, the REACH came to referendum and it was involved with two other big community projects, our Sport and Entertainment Centre and an expansion of one of our uh, recreational centres to provide for seniors activities and more community activities. And we passed a referendum and the REACH was on its way. Um, I was involved in the, on a committee that helped develop the original exhibitions for that as the representative of the MSA Museum. And then um, my executive director said to me, well, I think the board is planning to give away the collection. So you may want to apply for the job at the REACH. And I did, and here I am. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Now the, the nature of the collection, uh, how did it come about? What are, what are some of the motivations for the early developments of it? Um, oh. And how would you maybe track it over the years? Well, it came out of the MSA Museum collection. So what happened when the REACH came along was uh, because we have the better facility and we're not a frame house, for example, so it's a much better place to keep the archives and the photographic collection and some of the more sensitive artifacts. Uh, the board, the executive director at the MSA Museum Society opted to split the collection. Some they would retain for their use and some that needed another level of care and, and, and uh, stewardship would come here. And mm -hmm. so that's what happened. And so, you know, it was largely, it's a very uh, Anglo-centric collection uh, created from uh, an organization of women's institutes that really wanted to preserve the stories of the pioneers and that kind of thing. So. Um, we started to focus a bit in about the mid-1990s on centering some of the other cultural stories. So we started with the South Asian community. It was called um, a Canadian Image Project funding, and we were able to interview some of the pioneer South Asian
families and people here and collect photographs so they form a large part of that. Um, but we have been moving in a direction at the reach of not so much acquiring objects but stewarding them in the community. It's a pretty colonial mindset to collect and then show. Um, so what we've done is we've, well we borrowed from other institutions thankfully um, as we built a better collection here, but we've also worked with families and communities to take in the objects on loan and present them along with the stories and then return them with some support for care and keeping and preventive conservation, all that kind of thing. So that's what we're doing now because it was really pointed out to me by, a, by a, one of my friends uh, through the South Asian Studies Institute that asking to have everything donated as a pretty colonial mindset, we're trying to move away from that. No. In, in changing uh, the strategy, the relationship of the museum to the, to the population, uh, what, were some, what were some thoughts as to how to conduct outreach? Um, how, how, how did you sort of change uh, your process of relating to the community with that, with that alteration? Well, we've really changed how we create exhibitions fundamentally. So we're doing a much more community-based, uh, community engagement model. Uh, so, as an example, we're working on an exhibition about the Abbotsford South Asian community. We've got about uh, nearly 25% of our population is South Asian in origins, and there's, it's been a community of such long standing. They were settling here at the turn of the century, so not new by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but it's to work with those communities in a much more meaningful and long term way. So, as an example, in 2010, we started to work with um, well, it's called the Centre for Indo-Canadian Studies at U of E then, but it's the South Asian Studies Institute now. We began to partner with them on the celebration for the centennial of our beautiful Gursi Temple uh, to bring sort of our knowledge of museums and event planning to bear with that. So we worked with the Khalsa Dewan Society, uh, the Centre for Indo-Canadian Studies, the Punjabi Patrika, and we did a series of events throughout the year to celebrate. Uh, it culminated then in, in supporting uh, the KDS and, and, and CSIS then to create the Legacy Project, which is uh, the Sikh Heritage Museum in the in former Langer of the Gursi Temple, mm -hmm. and to build that relationship and to continue to work to, together. So in the initial years, a lot of the museum, the exhibition development would come through the community and through Nelsassi, and I would just support by hanging things up and, and helping with labels and just supporting as, as you know, because they're not, they're not curators, they're, they're academics and researchers and community partners, so doing what I could to support that. And now, they're just often doing amazing exhibitions, completely ex wonderful exhibitions on their own. The other thing that we're really proud of, that we actually published late last year, was um, a local history children's book. It's called Sumath Hotsa. And it deals with uh, Sumas Lake. So the drainage of Sumas Lake occurred uh, between 1919 and 1924. There was a vast uh, 10,000 acre lake uh, that lay between us and Chilliwack. Uh, the lands around it uh, really attracted settlement. You know, beautiful fertile lands. And uh, the problem with the lake was that at the time of freshet in the spring, it would triple in size to 30,000 acres. And once a settler has tied themselves to a patch of land, if it floods in the spring, it's, it's, it's not 
uh, it doesn't work for their plans to create an agricultural land base. So uh, they petitioned landowners, petitioned the provincial government to see some kind of scheme through that would manage the lake. It became a plan to drain the lake completely. And although indigenous leaders throughout the Stalo communities wrote, petitioned, visited against the project, it was carried out to great cheers of success and accomplishment. And it remained, that history remained largely the dominant voice until recently. Um, it had a devastating reclamation, had a drainage, had a devastating effect on local indigenous communities. Uh, you know, they've been here for tens of thousands of years. You know, it's, their culture is tied to that area. It's, their medicines are there. It's, it's, you know, it's where, it was their larder. It was so much more than uh, a non-Indigenous person can imagine. And the loss was just incredible. So we began to examine it that way, but how do you tell that story in a way that doesn't put people off? Mm -hmm. um, so we worked with uh, Chris Silver, who is a counselor from Samath First Nation, and Carolyn Victor, who is a well-known artist from Xi'an, both Stolo communities, and a number of community uh, knowledge keepers to create a children's book. So it's the story of a little boy who goes to the museum and he finds out about Sumas Lake. And he comes running home to his grandmother and he says, Grandma, Grandma, did you know about the lake? And she says, yeah, I know about the lake. And he says, do you remember the lake? And she says, no, I don't. But you know, we have Squawkel that talk about the lake and I can share those stories with you. And they drive through the land and she talks about the stories and how connected the community was to the lake and what a loss it was. And so people here now can go out and, and drive that route and see it through those eyes. Uh, the other thing that was really very positive was that um, we were able to get support, sponsorship, to publish enough copies that every elementary school classroom in our school district, in the Mission School District, which is north of us, and the Chil Chilliwack School District could all get copies of the book, mm. and that we could provide a copy for every Indigenous home in all of the Stalo communities, so that young people would know that story, know their place in that story, and feel pride in the heritage that's associated with that story, not as, you know, as, as colonizers, we've conquered the lake, right? That's not the story we wanted to tell anymore. So, um, ways in which we're working with the community in a much better collegial way these days. How long did that project take to imagine and, and, and execute? Uh, it was a couple of years because yeah. um, we started out and we would write a draft and it would have to go to back to the community readers and then we would have to educate ourselves about what they were telling us and we'd have another draft. And then of course we had COVID, so the face-to-face -face meeting stopped, so that kind of slowed things down. Um, but a couple of years from beginning to end until publication. Huh. Yeah, and then we were able to turn it, uh, we created an exhibition. We couldn't get one of the exhibitions we had planned. It couldn't get to us because of COVID. Um, and so we turned the book into an exhibition. Mm. So we took the beautiful um, uh, images, which are uh, archival images, separate archival images that Carrie Lynn has intervened on with beautiful indigenous designs to tell the story. So we created exhibition panels of those, we put text up. Um, and then we have, as part of the interpretation of this story, we've been working over a few years with um, a shadow puppet artist to create more than life-size, life-size in some cases, uh, 
creatures that would have dwelt in the lake. So we have a 16-foot sturgeon. We have a giant heron. Now we have Mike the mink, who's about six feet long. And we do these events where we tell the story, but these beautiful illuminated puppets act out the event. So we had them in the gallery. We did a, we called them the, the culture kits. So we had these little sturgeons that make and take. So everything a, ch a child needs is in the bag. So it all started uh, through maps and archival records and photographs. And it became this amazing story and a retelling re-examination of history to be a much more uh, egalitarian telling of the story. What are some other re-examinations that you that you have in mind with the uh, with the Reach archive and, and and the history of the region? Well we're always working with uh, UFE University of Fraser Valley students. We have history for the web students every year and this year I'm working a bit more closely with a student that is examining um, organizational groups in the Fraser Valley considering their uh, links to white supremacy and racism. Mm -hmm. And so she's preparing a website about that using uh, photographs from our collection, news clippings because we have an archive of uh, all of our local publications from those day, from early on, um, photos of objects in our collection to revisit those collections and look at them in a way that they haven't been looked at before. And so that's quite exciting to see the collections tell a completely different story. And it's not that we turn away objects or I'm not trying to uh, actively collect. It's just there are some objects that are better left where they are, where they belong, as I'm sure you can understand. And the fact that uh, the community trusts us to care for those in the short term and, and share the stories makes me very proud to be able to do that. Um, but yes, so we, and we plan to do more of it um, in the coming months. We're actually going to, I'm going to work with a, a practicum student. We'll be looking at a number of the objects in the collection with an eye to revisiting the histories of those. So it might be a Halloween costume that at one point was just a harmless children's costume that is now a triggering racist object, mm -hmm. right? So to look at those, and incorporate those kinds of stories into what we have, right? So that kind of thing. The, the combination of being, I mean, in, in your title, you have both gallery and, and museum, you have yeah. an archives component. How does that allow for a, 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 a contemporary interpretations of historical objects? Is that something that you feel uh, helps you in that process of, of examining? Of course, yes. So we can, we, you know, with the newspapers, we have uh, the Abbotsford Post, which was published here uh, between 1910 and 1924, and then the Abbotsford, uh, Mass, Abbotsford Sumas News, which started publication in 1924 and is still publishing today as the Abbotsford News. So we can go back to those documents and look at the contemporary history of those events and look at them as they were viewed at that time, obviously, but how how the community might view those events today, mm. which would be very different given the much greater diversity of the community than in those days. Mm. So I think it's something that we have to do uh, to be able to tell as many stories as broadly as we can. Mm -hmm. And to certainly take the museum out of being a, a bastion of, of settler history to being much more broadly representative of our community.
What are some stories that you're, you're excited about in the community that are emerging perhaps at present that you, that you want to help facilitate through, through the gallery? Uh, well, we're, because we do a blend of, uh, as much as possible, we blend both art and heritage to bring those two aspects of our, of our mandate together. Um, anything that comes in, so we're going to do an exhibition on sports, which, you know, from an artist's perspective might be one thing, but from the objects in the collection might be another, and to bring them together to tell all of those stories in a combined and slightly different way is very exciting. We're going to, we have our Voices of the Valley exhibition that we, um, I worked with um, Christina Reed and Anna Irwin, who were with uh, the MSA Museum, now Heritage Abbotsford at the time, uh, to develop a, a static community exhibition because for many years I was trying to keep on top of our rapidly changing exhibition turnover. So it turned out all I was doing was creating new historic exhibitions. The other thing was that the educators in our community were finding that very challenging uh, to create lesson plans around something that was so short-lived. The turnover was so Right, quick. they just could not keep on top of that. Um, so what we decided was that we needed a more permanent, uh, broader community history exhibition because, you know, Trithui House tells many stories, but uh, being a heritage house owned by a timber baron close to the, the lumber company, it, it, it does limit what you can do, especially when the spaces limit what you can do. I mean, I struggled with that for years. To be able to tell the broader stories. So the three of us came up with eight significant themes of local history, and then we interwove them with the various stories, personal reminiscences, uh, the exhibition contains objects from both material culture collections. Um, to be able to create a, a venue that we can share multiple stories from. So we've assigned icons to each theme. And as you're going through and you're looking perhaps at a didactic panel or a, a PowerPoint on a bright sign, you can see these icons and you know the themes to which it relates. So we can tell innumerable stories based on what an educator is focusing on in that exhibition, but it's been in place now since 2016, mm -hmm. um, and we're very proud of it. It won a Governor General's Award for Community uh, History for Programming, very happy with that, but it's time that we examine all of those themes through a more social justice, more community lens, and so we've already begun that work. We've been working with them. Um, a uh, young Canada work student that was through uh, parked at the university to go through our archival records and bring things together to talk about uh, cultures that have been, uh, histories that have been really underrepresented in, uh, in past exhibitions and to kind of center those and create an exhibition that talks more about people than about events and times. Mm -hmm. So we'll be working on that over the next couple of years and then in t uh, 2024, We'll be redoing that exhibition and probably bringing part of it out into the Great Hall so that we've got a larger footprint to be able to tell more stories. Wow, yes. Oh, yeah. Really excited about that. Broad strokes. When you engage with a, an artist, uh, how do you open up the archive to the artist? What's that, what's that relationship like? Quite often they approach us. Mm. They have a theme that they would like to explore um, or that they would like to make uh, more local. And so, based on our conversation about what they're hoping to find and what they would like to come out, I get out some materials and we go through and, you know, that sort of evolves and get them access to the photographs. 
and the photographs are not a problem because we have this massive digitization project uh, that started innocently enough about eight years ago when we had about 15,000 photographs. Uh, so I thought, you know, we'll do a couple of thousand, we'll see how that goes, and then we'll do maybe four or five thousand a year, we'll see how that goes, and then, you know, in five years, we'll play catch up and we'll do whatever we've got in the interim. So it was sort of a, roughly a four, possibly five year goal at the time to make all of those uh, photographs in the context available online. Except that in year two, our Abbotsford News backed a box van up to our loading bay and unloaded 35 file boxes of negatives from the newspaper. So we have continued scanning. We were doing about 5,000 a year and we're doing probably about 1,000 a year now yeah, yeah. Um, to make all of that context available on the line in the photographs. So artists have access to that. So if they are just Googling a subject, quite often it will bring them to us. And they'll see this, the photograph will bring them in. And then I can say, well, you know, there's so much more that goes with that. This is a significant local person with artifacts. You know, we have art newspaper articles. Do you not just want to come and I can help you with that? So that's one way that we um, make that available. Uh, this Abbotsford region, Trithui House, Seek Temple down the street, yes. Reach Gallery. There is very much a hub sense to these institutions. They're, yes. they're working with one another. Yeah. Um, for for regions that may have a similar triangulation or relation of institutions, what would you say are some important things starting out to try and set up those kinds of connections? Um, just conversations about the commonality. Um, you know, all of our messages are slightly different, and we also have the. Mennonite uh, Heritage Museum as well. So we all have relationships. Um, so, I mean, we have a massive photograph collection. So when the Mennonite Heritage Museum wants to um, expand on its uh, exhibition, quite often they'll contact me for photographs. You know, we borrow artifacts from Heritage Abbotsford. You know, we lend our expertise and objects to the Sikh Heritage Museum. It's just that we are all telling a community story, and I think it does take all of us to, to do that in its entirety. What, what do you see for the future of the REACH Gallery, um, you know, five years out, ten years out? Where, where do you see the, the institution itself, and what are some of your aspirations for, for the future? Our aspirations are to have a much better relationship with uh, the cultural groups in our community, you know, we've sort of started with our indigenous community, we've started with the South Asian community and building relationships with, with, with them. Um, and I likened it to, you know, a young mother who has a child, gets that child into kindergarten, has another baby. You kind of, you know, you build those bridges and you pour your energies into building that relationship. And then you can sustain that relationship and still have some energy to put into building other relationships. And then, too, through all of that, it becomes a network. It's not just I'm dealing with this, you, I'm dealing with you, I'm dealing with you. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a network of support in the community. So that's our goal, really. Um, you know, certainly to be recognized for the thoughtful exhibitions that we can create as a combination of art and heritage, a uh, center of dialogue for our community. You were mentioning the, the archive, the photo archive was built, um, the, you know, there was the donation from the, from the from newspaper. The 
How was the other portion, the early 15,000 items, how, were the, how was that generated? Was that in stops and starts, or how, yeah. how did that come about? Well, that was, that was the foundation collection that we received from um, the MSA Museum Society right. when we opened. So that had been acquired over the, the lifetime of the MSA Museum Society. So there had been some earlier smaller donations from the Abbotsford News. Um, we had, the museum actually had a, a contract photographer from time to time, and he would go around and take very important community pictures, the streetscapes that allow us to document the history of the community really well. Um, there's lots of images of, of built heritage. Uh, we did built heritage studies so that we could create an inventory of those, of those structures and photographs. Um, we still work on that to some extent. Um, and then just family collections. Uh, the Canadian Image Project was a big one because we reached out to a number of South Asian families and asked for the loan of their photographs so that we could copy them. Um, and that's something we did a lot, you know, was, was borrowing photographs because people are, you know, they're, it's, a, it's, a, it's an heirloom. It's something that has such value to them. So borrowing and copying is a great way to do that. Um, but that's how that was acquired. Mm. Slow and incrementally, nothing like a box fan. Were you finding also researchers making use of it? It, oh. must, it must be a, a boon for anyone doing any work in this. Oh yeah, yeah definitely. Um, because we do part of the context that we identify as identified people. So anyone's doing research on, on a member of their family, any genealogical research, uh, that will bring them to us. And then over many, many, many years, volunteers and I have created an index to all of the obituaries, marriage and birth announcements that appeared in the news. So I have the index, so once they contact me about the photograph, I can say, oh, but I also have this and this and this. And then we have community histories where they may have lived, that kind of thing. Um, another big interest in the uh, archival photographs is people who do not have a family history here. They move into the community and they want to build that history and they'll do that through their community or through their property. And so that brings us back to that heritage building inventory so I can tell them about the history of their property, tell them about the history of the land around them and their neighborhood. And that sort of um, embeds them into the history of the community, right? Yeah, it's interesting. It seems as though the digital initiatives that the, that REACH have undertaken have sort of changed the, 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 the use of the museum in a way. It's really, it has, would you say it's really kind of engaged into that interactive oh. ideal that you have for, for the collection? Yes, absolutely. And the amazing thing about it, I mean, the reason that it was so important to me to do was a very personal story. There's a photograph from the news, and it was May 1st, 1947, and it's children, elementary school children and high school age children, and they're standing on the corner in our main street, and they are protesting. It's our first protest march. They are protesting the post-war post rise in the price of candy bars. So candy bars have gone from five cents to eight cents overnight, and this was a, a grassroots movement with kids that started in uh, Cowichan and came this way. Um, and so this picture is just adorable. It's kids with protest signs about candy bars. It shows the streetscape. It's just a really adorable picture. So um, I had a wall in my house and I thought this would look good. So I printed this, you know, picture 
and my mother-in-law came for dinner, she does very often, and she said, oh, do you know anybody in this picture? And I said, you know, mom, I don't. I don't, we don't have any idea who these kids are. It doesn't say in the article. And so she, she points to this little person sort of in the mid group and she said, well, that's me. <laughs> so then of course we sit, she talks about it. She talks about the constable coming down and calling them all anarchists. She talked about, you know, how her dad is probably gonna, you know, give her heck. She might not get her nickel allowance. Tells me the whole story and she names as many of the kids as she can. And I thought, I just need to do this with every single picture in the collection, right? And it has worked that way. When you put them out there, people with the information about them find them, and perhaps the information was recorded incorrectly when it was recorded by the news. Perhaps it wasn't recorded at all. You know, sometimes we have photographs that the donor doesn't have the full context for. And so the feedback that comes back that helps us create a, a more comprehensive and accurate historical record has been really amazing. So we're really grateful for that. Well, Chris, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Oh, well, thank you so much for visiting. I'm glad you could finally make it to the region. We hope you come back.